0: Welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Holly Grig spall In 2013, Holly published a controversial book called Sweetening the Pill, in which she made the case for a closer look at hormonal birth control, specifically the birth control pill Now, ever since it was introduced in the early 1960s, the pill has pretty much been inextricable from the concept of women's liberation, bodily autonomy, and really just everyone's sense of personal freedom and life choices. And Holly disputes none of that. But she's also been speaking up for many, many years about the ways that the birth control pill has, uh, in recent decades... Been used uh, in ways that it wasn't originally intended. For instance, instead of taking it for limited periods of time to avoid getting pregnant, many women are often on it for the bulk of their reproductive lives, sometimes from the moment they hit puberty. And some people, like Holly, believe that the pill comes with enough risks to physical and mental health that we shouldn't avoid having conversations about those risks, but we avoid them basically because the pill is so sacrosanct. Now, the conversation you're about to hear came about under somewhat unusual circumstances. Sweetening the pill was the basis of a documentary film, The Business of Birth Control, which was produced by Ricky Lake, who's also known for the documentary about the over-medicalization of childbirth called The Business of Being Born. And that documentary, The Business of Birth Control, came out last year It so happened that I saw the film and I talked about it on my other podcast, A Special Place in Hell. I did not have such nice things to say about the film, partly because I was concerned about the way it seemed to be promoting the idea that young women, including teenage girls, could rely on fertility tracking to prevent pregnancy. Anyway, I was pretty harsh about it, which made things awkward when Holly, without having heard that episode, applied to come to an unspeakeasy retreat here in Los Angeles. And I had to tell her what I'd said on the podcast, and we had a kind of tense back and forth until we both decided that this was all the more reason she should come to the retreat. And I'm so glad she did, because even though I'm still not sure I agree with her on everything, she is exquisitely well-spoken and informed and thoughtful about the subject and really got me thinking about it in a different way. So much so that I wanted to bring her on the podcast. So I hope you get as much out of this conversation as we did At the retreat and in the bonus portion for paying subscribers, we talk a little bit about this bad foot we got off on and how we got over it. We also talk about the fertility tracking app she's developed for teenagers called Tina and uh, how you can do things like take your uh, basal temperature with an app. Spoiler, it's not about putting your iPhone on your forehead. So with that said, here's my conversation with Holly Grig Spall. Holly Griggs-Ball, welcome to The Unspeakable. <laughs> Hi, thank you. I think just about everyone who came of age at any point after the 1960s regards the birth control as like a real sacred cow. Like it's synonymous with the women's movement, with individual autonomy and freedom, not just for women, but for everyone. Lately, I feel like just even in the last couple of years, there's started to be talk Um, often among progressive women who are generally quite feminist minded about this question of whether the pill has been oversold to us, as well as, you know, more talk about certain negative downstream social effects. Your book, Sweetening the Pill, came out 10 years ago now this year. Uh, So you've been on this beat for a while. What is it that you think we have not been understanding about the birth control pill?
1: Yeah, so my book came out in 2013. And as you say, it's really as a sort of the re-examination of the pill and that wave of or moment of feminism, which I think has obviously had long term consequences for how we view and practice feminism now. I think that's really having a moment. When I wrote my book, I was really uh, looking at the fact that the winners had written all the history. So there was very little out there that looked at the pill in a sort of critical way, in, especially in terms of its reverberating social and cultural consequences, but also in terms of its health consequences for individual women. There just wasn't really much out there, um, and that's why I felt that it needed further sort of investigation and what prompted me to, to write the book.
0: And you talk about how this came out of your own experience. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So um, it it began because I myself took the pill for 10 years from when I was a teenager um, through to my mid-20s. And I had very sort of severe side effects with one particular brand of pill, which happened to be the most popular brand at the time and the one that was most heavily advertised in the US, but also covertly advertised in other countries that don't allow Direct to consumer advertising of pharmaceuticals, and they were mainly mental health-related uh, side effects like depression and anxiety, but also physical. And because it was much talked about, uh, and many people in my social circles were taking it, and it was kind of the first pill that you would hear mentioned by name um, that people knew what they were taking, and it had often been presented to them as like the better uh, version that would have less side effects, but would also have lots of like off label positive benefits like uh, clearing your skin. They even said it would be the one that wouldn't make you put on weight um, and combat uh, PMS like mood symptoms. So uh, that is kind of the collision of two things. I was having a terrible experience on it and a lot of people taking it at the same time, which of course meant that lots of people were also not having great experiences on it and they were sharing those experiences. And at the time, you know, this was in forums. It was not in Facebook groups even. Uh, so I sort of started as a I was a journalist, but an arts and culture journalist, uh, I started sort of doing my own <laughs> research, as they say, and um, found a lot <laughs> of stories online, uh, that very eerily mimicked my own, um, in very specific ways, uh, what I was experiencing. And that sort of turned on the switch I guess for me and then I started looking into it for a piece for a magazine and that allowed me to do some interviews and have the support to do some interviews uh, with research scientists and doctors and uh, one particular one you know re- talked a little bit about the fact that uh, women's health issues were sort of under-researched underfunded for research and you know to talk to me about looking at the pill through the lens of okay this is a medication that a lot of healthy women take for many years of their lives as sort of a lifestyle drug. It was the first lifestyle drug, really, and obviously men do not have an equivalent and so I sort of that that's what set me on the path
0: wow, lifestyle drug I mm. never really thought of it that way that's yeah true. it's a
1: pharmaceutical it's a pharmaceutical term essentially, and it really arose in the nineties so it's this idea of. Um, Something that, of course, as I just said, you're taking as a healthy person generally. I mean, obviously, there are some people who take it who have uh, really uh, serious health issues and debilitating symptoms. But a lot of people are taking it from the point of just wanting to control their fertility. And so they're healthy people and you're taking it for that. But because, of course, they had to sell different brands of pills to keep up the momentum of profit um and things would fall into you know losing the patent they needed to create new types of pills even though they all do the same pretty much in terms of preventing pregnancy they needed to have added benefits to them right which mm-hmm. is how we got to the brand that i was taking which led me to read the book which was it's now off patent um, but at the time it was Yazin, uh, or yasmin it was called and it's very you can look this up it's very well uh, evidence that it was um advertising outside of its researched boundaries got stamped on by the FDA um, and then eventually was discovered to um, have a higher risk of causing serious health complications injuries and deaths due to its particular progestin which is what they'd added in to make it different to make it profitable again and that was covered a little bit but it was not covered in um, any you know Women's media sites, or sort of what you would call like feminist media sites, at all really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I that when I started digging into it, that's what I found troubling. But that's kind of where the lifestyle things comes from is where they start sort of broadening the potential for the pill that you're taking in order to make it more attractive than the other ones that are out there that do the same thing.
0: The concept behind Yaz was that you weren't necessarily taking it to prevent pregnancy; you were just taking it for other kind of health and wellness reasons.
1: Yeah, it was actually the tagline was to uh, sort of be beyond female, kind of the idea of that, uh, to get beyond the body, um, to kind of control PMS and, like I said, and acne um, and weight. Um, and it was, you know, that's those are the messages they put out there. Um, and that's not, you know, that wasn't the only pill that had done that. It had been a long stretch of advertising the pill in that way since sort of the early 90s, really. When we started seeing this change from when it was developed and produced, which was really, you know, first of all, you could only get it if you were married, or, or you could say you had menstrual irregularities, and then you would only take it when you were in relationships or for short periods of time, and then people got married earlier, people had children earlier, and so on. But then it became something that you would be on more so for much of your fertile lifespan, so often from your teen years through to when you chose or if you chose to have children, um, and in between having children. And that kind of changed it uh, because it obviously opened up the market to something, became something that you could have uh, half the population on for um, much of their lives.
0: Wow. What kinds of effects were starting to come up either with you or with just people generally with Yaz?
1: Yeah, so um, well, what I was experiencing really was what would be you know considered subclinical depression and anxiety, kind of panic attacks, really feeling like I'd had quite a personality shift um, at quite quickly after. But it took me a good, after ta- starting taking them, but it took me a good two, two and a half years to make the connection. And I didn't make that connection because I'd been on different pills since I was a teenager. And um, you find uh, that you don't really think of it as some- doing something other than just what you expect it to do, which is preventing pregnancy and having that kind of local effect. So it wasn't something that I was aware could be a possibility um, until because I had many other people in my life using it, uh, I started having conversations about my experience and finding out other people were experiencing the same. And then when I started researching for the book and I, I began a blog <laughs> on Blogspot. And a lot of people started getting in touch with me and I started doing interviews and finding that this was happening. Um, and with Yaz, yes, the thing is, is specifically with that is that it has a what's called a distrospirinone progestin, which is what makes it so sets it apart from other brands. Um, and that has uh, some specific effects on the body. Um, and that was really my entry point into kind of trying as a complete lay person, not a science journalist, to understanding how the pill worked and how it could possibly make me feel so different in terms of my mood and outlook. And but from there, you know, obviously I, I started looking at the pill more generally. Uh the book isn't just about the effects of that one pill. I think it's a it's a you know, it's an interesting story, um, from the perspective of the fact that it is not something that was taken up by by female writers or feminists, really, in the space at all, not, as I I always make the comparison to how much we heard about, say, toxic shock syndrome
0: um, Mm -hmm.
1: in the 90s, which was a much bigger story. And uh, this was really sort of uh, ignored. It was a big blind spot. Um, But then more widely, you know, that all pills have uh, certain uh, side effects and uh, effects rather than just side effects. Um, which is what I ended up exploring more so.
0: God, toxic shock syndrome! I haven't thought about that in forever. That was mm. that had to do with uh, tampons, and I remember yes. reading horrific stories, like in women's magazines in the eighties, about like you know women who had just you, you basically like go septic, right? Just you kind losing of, legs like, and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But like, how often did that actually happen? Well, not that
1: often. No, it was pretty rare. If you think, no, there's uh, several hundred women uh, in the US that die a year from blood clots from the birth control pill. And this was something that was highlighted actually during the pandemic by Joe Biden, where they were talking about the COVID vaccine and blood clot risk, and they very happily bought out all the the charts and things to show don't worry <laughs> the birth control pill has a higher risk of blood of blood clots um, oh, which is wow. kind of amuse- amusing at the time um cuz that was meant to be the reason not to be concerned uh, rather than the reason to be concerned that perhaps there were plenty of people who didn't realize that it had that risk who were maybe had other factors that were you know uh, heightening it even more so
0: so were most of your interviews with users of birth control pills how much were you able to talk with either clinicians or researchers people in the scientific community even people associated with the pharmaceutical industry
1: yeah so i um initially obviously the my blog was written from a very sort of personal point of view of actually my experience coming off the birth control pill after 10 years and so it was sort of a documentation like a sort of just looking at what that experience like was for me personally. But at the same time, I was reading um, around the subject, um, trying to sort of look for places where this was discussed um, and not finding it, but finding lots of different other connections with you know the history of women's medicine and um, programs in developing countries, various things like that. Uh, and I got into sort of a seam of, of experts and people um, who do a lot of research into the menstrual cycle through the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research, unsurprisingly. And uh, there's an a organization in Canada called the Centre for Research into Ovulation and Menstrual Cycles. And uh, so that was where I was looking for, um, looking at, into expert interviews and interviewing people um Who had written on this, or mostly in sort of the academic arena, really, um and coming at it also more so from the point of view of sort of menstrual activism and mm. discussion of menstruation and the menstrual taboo and what that means for women, so that was really where it started and then obviously, as I was able to build more uh media coverage, I had some you know some pieces in u k and u s media. Um, when I was still writing my blog, um, I was able to reach out to other people who were doing research at the time into mental health side effects, specifically depression, or into like hormone sensitivity, why some women seem to experience more issues um, than others. And in terms of the ph- the, pharma- the people who involved in the pharmaceutical industry, I didn't have any no I didn't have any direct contact with them except once a, a compliance officer reached out to me. Um, to check everything was okay which I found really interesting that that's was the job title the lady had
0: well wait what do you mean they knew they were, you were writing the book or like wonder what pretext. I think
1: I think the blog probably, uh, you know, alerted them that I'd experienced side effects and they wanted to get in touch to, oh, to check that's uh, why I was no longer compliant <laughs> to,
0: oh, the, I see. Um, wow. to the
1: pill and maybe sort of do their due diligence in trying to find out what the side effects were that I reported. Uh, I don't know more than that. Uh, but yeah, um, so I... That's I, pretty I good did, customer was...
0: service. You could look at it that way.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true. You could see it like that. Um yeah so I did end up doing uh, a lot of expert interviews that I started uh, really when I was realized I wanted to turn the blog into a book.
0: So let's talk about this idea of menstrual activism because I think mm. uh, a lot of people associate that with concepts like the rhythm method. Okay. So before the birth control Mm -hmm. pill came along, there was this idea that you were really taking a gamble and there were very few forms of effective birth control. And a lot of people just kind of crossed their fingers and said a prayer. And, and this idea that That women really couldn't be trusted to understand when they were fertile and when they were not, and maybe for good reason because the body is unpredictable. So I don't, you know, what what we don't want to do is start like blaming women for not understanding themselves because you know lots of things happen. But maybe explain the difference between the concept of the rhythm method, the old fashioned kind of ideas around that, and the menstrual activism that you're talking about today.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, menstrual activism's a lot of different things. A lot of it is kind of focused more on breaking that period taboo. So it's no longer shameful or embarrassing for people to talk about periods, which I think we've done pretty effectively in the last 10 years, really. Um, yeah. But in terms of, you know, more like what would you would link to menstrual cycle awareness. So seeing that it is more than just the period right you're seeing it as a cycle that we're all women are experiencing month to month say and you're always in that experience of the menstrual cycle and that's more where it's leading now Um, and in terms of the rhythm method so yes there is something that is called the rhythm method which is basically just um, being aware of when you have your periods and based on medical averages which we still use today especially with women seeking treatment for fertility issues we assume that the cycle is 28 days long or is always a certain amount of days for that person that that woman and you assume that ovulation happens in the middle of that cycle day 14 so you make certain assumptions based on medical averages which a lot of women have come up against and that is obviously um, not correct for the vast majority because the menstrual cycle is changeable. Uh, ovulation is a movable point due to lots of factors. And so it's not it's not going to be helpful. Um, it's actually not very helpful in actually getting pregnant, let alone avoiding pregnancy. And so I would say that that's a certain type of what you would call uh, fertility awareness. But for t- what pe- most people are practicing now when we hear about, oh, you know, the natural birth control craze on TikTok, for example, is or, you know, influencers influencing people to take up natural birth control is actually the fertility awareness method, which is a lot more complicated because it involves daily tracking. And it's based on the scientific fact that women have a six day fertile window every cycle. Um, and that includes the lifespan of the egg and the lifespan of sperm in the female body. And that is, it's is six days, usually less, to be honest, depending on sperm health. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, you have to assume that sperm is able to live as long as it possibly can. Uh, but most of it does not. And you are able to track that window based on um, fertility signs throughout your cycle. So one of them is basal body temperature. So your uh, base or resting body temperature gets slightly higher uh, after you ovulate and remains that way until right before your period, unless you get pregnant where it stays high. Um, And then cervical fluid, which is what sperm needs to survive. Uh, So that changes. So there's something called fertile cervical fluid um, and the rest of the time you might have dry or non-fertile cervical fluid. Um, And then there's sort of a third one that nobody really talks about, which is the changing position of the cervix um, during the cycle. And so the idea is that you can track that uh, to an effective degree. Uh, you, for uh, you know, on the on the on the basic level, you can uh, know when you ovulated, and after you've ovulated, you cannot get pregnant uh, because the, the egg is is gone. Uh, you won't release another egg until the next cycle, so there is no possibility of pregnancy between that and your period. And then prior to ovulation, you're predicting the opening of the fertile window so that you manage um, that potential sperm lifespan. So that's, for me, was a major part of my experience of coming off the pill um, because it, it was something I personally did to avoid pregnancy and have done for, oh, since what, 2009, I suppose. Um, and it also means that you become aware that uh, there is an alternative, uh, which I think is, you know, the fact that we think there isn't an alternative feeds into a lot of the dominant narrative around the pill and which is fair enough um and so once you know that there's a viable alternative that makes a huge difference but also it makes you realize how strange it is that we take a pill every day to avoid uh, a six-day window per cycle um you know a pill that potentially changes you know is as as is as is more fashionable to say is a psychoactive medication today Mm -hmm. as people have been saying so yeah
0: Okay, I hear what you're saying. And I can also (laughs) imagine people listening to this and saying like, okay, fair enough, but the stakes are so high. Maybe you, Holly Griggs Ball, can keep track of all this and trust yourself to get this as right as you can and deal with the consequences if something goes wrong. But we're talking about often very young girls, teenage girls, Are they going to be able to keep track of all this busy women? There's any number of scenarios in which somebody is uh, either going to be unable or unwilling to thread this needle.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's a reasonable response. And I think that for me, what I've always advocated for is not that everybody should be using fertility awareness method. It's that everybody should have the body literacy um, that I've just explained. Um, and should have the understanding of how their menstrual cycle works um you know when you uh you what I've found through my research is that you know with the pill we're taught that it regulates your cycle, which it does not um that the hormones in the pill are the same as the hormones your body creates, which they are not. Um, a lot of people don't even realise that it's that it's uh, preventing ovulation, which you know, I know sounds odd. No, oh, I, I thought they that was the
0: one thing people did did realize. <laughs> not always no?
1: apparently. Okay. Um, and they believe that the withdrawal bleed is uh, is an actual menstruation, which is something that actually came up in recent years too, uh, because you know the the directive. Uh, became that it was perfectly fine to run your pill packets together and not experience that bleed, and and then everybody was alerted to the fact that oh, it is not a physiological menstruation; it's just there and was created originally to actually make uh, women, as a consumers of the pill, more comfortable with the idea. Mm. That was that was why it was originally created. So there's a lot of misinformation and half truths that get accepted once we once we are sort of promoted the pill. Um, And a lot of body literacy is missed out. So for me, it's not a case of saying, well, if everybody's capable of practicing the fertility awareness method, it's certainly not true based on circumstance, age, various things, busyness. Um, But it's more about the fact that I do believe that everybody should have the basic body literacy body literacy education, which we don't have, we get taught the medical averages that I mentioned earlier mostly that are not really relatable to many women. Um, And then from that point, you know, obviously, if we choose to take the pill at some point in our lives, my hope is that we have the informed choice of doing that and are aware that there are these side effects, especially if say we have a history of depression, we're aware that there's a possibility of depression or a family history, if we have other factors that may heighten our risk of blood clots, that we are either tested for them or ahead of time or we are aware of that and we know the choice that we're making and then we can make that choice. In terms of teenagers, that's a slightly different situation because with teenagers, you have a maturing reproductive system at the time. So it's like the brains are developing, the reproductive system is also developing in tandem with that. And it takes some time to develop. And so if you're routinely, and again, this is all I'm saying over over prescription and routinely giving out the pill, and uh, not that it is not necessary or needed for some people, that you then find that, you know, that you won't. They're first of all, getting it maybe after they get their first period, um, maybe their periods are difficult, uh, heavy or really painful, and they're getting it for that. And that's stopping that maturation process and pausing it and then restarting it later, which makes coming off very, very difficult for some people because you're restarting that process later. And you may have covered up um, things that could have you should have been treated more um, seriously or with more care um, that will arise at the point exactly when they're hoping to get pregnant within a year or two years say. And so the final thing I was going to say is I have never met anybody who's ever said that a teenage girl should use fertility awareness method for contraception.
0: Okay. I've
1: never met anybody who's ever said. So ever, you're ever not saying that.
0: that you're not no, saying that to be clear. No, okay.
1: No. And I think all anybody in this space who is sort of uh, sounding the alarm bells around pill and teenage girls is saying condoms, 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 um, which is necessary for a shit, which is, you know, difficult, in context that we have currently but maybe involves some sort of shift in the way that we see um, you know pregnancy prevention in terms of the sexes but that is what is necessary in terms of preventing pregnancy and in teenage years are far more likely stds so.
0: but i feel like we're always told that condoms aren't that effective i mean i remember like when i was in high school i feel like we were told in health class like yes condoms but plus something else like plus spermicide the idea that you would just rely on that was uh you know that was a gamble
1: well condoms are very effective used properly um and they just have to be used properly properly by by (laughs) 16 year old boys yeah um and yes adding spermicide separately does make them more more effective and that is ideally what you would be taught to do as a teenager for sure but you know in general you have to see that um, you know, teenagers, if you're having sex, you have to be avoiding STDs as much as, if not more so than pregnancy in terms right. of its possibility, in terms of every instance that you have sex, it's much more likely that you're going to get an STD than get pregnant. So that, you know, that's the only that's way a good point. to prevent STDs.
0: <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, and actually, I never thought about this before, but you're right. So going on birth control pills almost immediately upon Entering puberty would just radically alter your system. It really paves over the natural progression of your of your body system, right? And I yeah. guess
1: so you see that the ovaries and the brain are connected, right? And I don't want to be condescending, but a lot of people haven't thought about this. Frankly, I didn't think about it until I was in my mid-20s. And though the hormones that you're creating during puberty are acting on the brain, and the brain's acting on developing the, the uterus and ovaries and the reproductive cycles. And you're, you know, those things are linked to, you know, mood and libido and personality development and creativity, and all these different things that come along with a hormone experience, not just for women, for men, too. And yes, you're putting a stop to that. So that it, it means you're pausing the maturation of the menstrual cycle, which can lead to a lot of consequences. There is research to show that if you do that in teenage years, the risk of depression is higher. And like across the lifetime, the risk of breast cancer is higher in later life. Um, there's various specific problems with that, but also, you know, we don't do that to to young boys um we wouldn't feel we we perhaps wouldn't discuss the idea we haven't really uh of stopping testosterone production at 13 and restarting it again when they want to have a baby
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, with someone mm-hmm. um and so you know when you're doing this I, now i as a teenager had very very painful heavy periods and it was not a pleasant experience Um, To the point I would faint flat out in school, which was really embarrassing. And so, you know, I'm not saying that the the, I'm not also not saying that, you know, the pill isn't a great tool in some circumstances, but it is the way that we currently use it, which is what, um, you know, the Barbara Seaman, who was one of the leaders of the women's health movement called uh, the medication for the disease of being female which is basically what we do use it as, is, is, uh, you know, as you said before, it's a sacred cow, but it's also not really something that we see as a medication as such um, that we look at in the same way that we look at maybe, you know, other things that people take um, over their lifetime or for specific health issues.
0: I don't know if you have numbers, but like, do we know how common it is now for girls to be put on the pill very early, like essentially as soon as they hit puberty. I mean, I feel like a lot of, in in my cohort, I feel like a lot of my friends, the minute their daughters get their period, like they put them on the pill and it's kind of like (laughs) a way for the moms to feel like, okay, well that's taken care of because our generation has grown up with just our our relationship to the pill is so unquestioning. It's like, oh, this is great. I'm just going to put my daughter on this. And so this is one less thing I have to worry about.
1: Yeah, and it's a generational thing, you know, it's that, that's that we see, um, you know, that it's not problematic. There's no reason to be concerned about it. You're just taking something that regulates the cycle. It's no different to the hormones the body produces and so on. Um, and so you don't think of it having sort of consequences. And um, we have, that's the same thing that my mum chose for me. You also want to avoid teen pregnancy and i think that that is just really you know understandable um for a lot of people that they do feel that they are making the the right choice um i just think that also that you know once you go on something when you go on the pill at a young age um and don't come off often you know maybe you got come off in your 20s but maybe you don't come off until your early 30s you're setting yourself up for the possibility that you have unexplored menstrual health issues that haven't been looked at. Um, And the vast majority will come off in order to want to get pregnant later in life and maybe find that that's more difficult than they hoped. Mm -hmm. And not only because of that, but also because of lack of body literacy, to be honest. Um, And I think conceptually, it's just a very strange thing to do to decide that, um, you know, you're going to, to switch off hormone, the the hormones that the body's producing, and replace them with a synthetic set of hormones, for cool. right. teenage it's you know conceptually it's a little strange to me.
0: Did you look into like hormonal IUDs, for instance, things like Marina, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so with Marina, it's more you know it's a progestin um so there's no synthetic estrogen so often that is what is prescribed to women going through like old, older who are going through like perimenopause um but they are popular because they're called what are called long acting reversible contraceptives marks and they became popular kind of around the time my book came out um as an alternative to the pill um because you know part of it is this compliance issue uh if you have the pill then you still have to trust women to take it every day
0: Mm -hmm. um
1: and obviously the medical industry would prefer you know in terms of uh, avoidance of pregnancy that uh, an iud is something that you they would call set it and forget it so you wouldn't have to think about it um, until you needed another one and of you know if you're going to tear out the different methods that one is all uh, is sometimes the one that uh, women find is you know causes them less side effects, although that's not always the case. And that's an interesting situation too, because when that was launched, it was very much pushed through the um pushed through the pharmaceutical advertising that it was a locally impacting choice. So oh well it's an IUD it's in your uterus the, the hormones don't go anywhere else it's just preventing you getting pregnant there. But As time has gone on, research has come out that it is actually uh, acting on the whole body, surprise, surprise, the hormones have impact on the brain. And, um, you know, most recently it's come out, oh, this also seems to have a risk of of breast cancer um, that's not insignificant, uh, even though it doesn't have the synthetic estrogen component that we've become used to thinking was the reason for the breast cancer risk. So it does have a whole body effect, which means, you know, you're not saved necessarily from side effects, like mental health side
0: effects. Well, I want to talk about the role of technology and all of this, because I think that's really key. And I know that there are now apps, there are fertility tracking apps, you have made one yourself, and we're going to talk about that. But before that, Mm. how much um, thinking and talking have you done about the sort of larger, social, uh, consequences of, of the birth control pill. I mean, there's a lot of talk and the kind of that there's, there's an emerging conversation, I think ar- around women who are, I don't want to call them trads or traditionalists, but <laughs> I think there's, you know, people like Louise Perry yeah. are are talking about just the way that our, our assumptions about birth control have changed Uh, mating patterns, and just relationships between men and women, life choices, what women expect of men, and vice versa. So I'm wondering uh, just about your your thoughts around all of that sort of dialogue.
1: Yeah, I'm thrilled, to be honest. Uh, This is exactly what I was writing about in my book in, in 2013. Uh, to a T, and I'm really pleased because I've spent a long time in the world of the health side of this, and while that was like the catalyst for why I did this, I've I've done this work. My real passion for talking about it is really like the incredibly, uh, you know, unexamined social and cultural consequences of the pill, uh, in terms of like the potential negative effects and the the sort of critical thinking around that so I'm really thrilled about it Um, obviously what I find kind of interesting is that these women like Louise uh, Perry and Mary Harrington uh, were radicalized by having kids, Right. and so they didn't really think about this until they got pregnant and gave birth. And for me, it was not having children, which I find kind of funny mm. uh, because I, I don't have children, I don't plan to have children. Um, but they, you know, their feeling is very much you of go through this realization of what it means to be female through pregnancy and birth. Which, yeah, absolutely. Um, but for me, it was through experiencing a, a menstrual cycle. when I hadn't since I was 16, 17, Um, soon after I got my period. So that was, for me, the catalyst. um, And it's similar because it's like the awareness of, okay, there are sex differences. I have a female experience of my biology, and that relates to my everyday experience of life. And, you know, uh, and for them, they were like, oh, becoming a mother made me realise that there are things that are specific to being female that are related to having a female biology um and you know with my book the the that was a lot of what i was talking about was like okay we need to talk about that the fact that there are sex differences uh, to talk about the impact of the pill um but the problem with doing that is that sexist <laughs> so my book was called mm-hmm. sexist because i did that right um so yeah i i i find it really interesting especially as you said the stuff about the relationship between men and women you know i was talking about with my book you know, things like, uh, you know, Hugh Hefner being a big proponent of the pill um, and really it about increasing this idea of which I got hammered for when my book came out, uh, the idea of like sexual availability. So assuming that sexual empowerment or sexual enjoyment for women is the amount of sex they're having um, without whether it's good sex for them or not, it's just that they're having more sex mm-hmm. uh, because they're on the pill and can't get pregnant. And, you know, also, you know, the idea that, you know, what, what is the experience of sex on the pill in terms of libido when we know that uh, women have a definitely a, a, a different um, experience of sex on the pill than they do when they're off the pill. Uh so what does that mean and in terms of as well, if you're experiencing that then what what do you what is that then does it become more performative um how does that connect to like raunch culture and like that kind of era of feminism? how does it connect to porn et cetera so yeah i was I was definitely joining all these dots back then um and I think back then <laughs> it was not received uh it was any kind of welcoming. I, welcoming arms, uh, people really saw it as a fr- an affront uh, to their freedoms. Um, so yeah,
0: I'm always struggling with what to do with a lot of these evo psych, evolutionary psychology concepts like Mm. because some of them are useful like the problem with evolutionary psychology is that there's a lot of good stuff there but it's been so abused and misconstrued and kind of misapplied that um it's lost it's lost some credibility but i mean there are studies like women who are like if they're if you're ovulating you're going to be more likely to be interested in or hook up with a certain kind of guy than if you're not like, <laughs> and I, I never know. And then if I guess, right. And so if you're on the pill, like, you're less likely to choose a mate that might be a good provider, because that particular, that scenario is not so much at stake, you're less likely, you're not going to get pregnant. So you're not worried about him sticking around. So you're going to pick mm-hmm. like a bad guy. I mean, all this stuff can get extremely just reduced into silliness. But like, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so I know what you mean. It's funny because that's really the area that piques most people's interest is the idea like that it affects your attraction and who you end up with in relationships and things like that. Now, I think part of like the sub the, the below uh women wanting to sort of get away from the body and control at least control and manage the body. Underneath that is wanting us as humans not wanting to be associated with animals right so mm-hmm. the idea is that or has always been that women have a hidden fertility whereas animals have uh they're on heat right A mm-hmm. so dog is a female dog is on heat whereas it's not something that humans experience
0: are humans the uh, only species that have hidden fertility well no i guess not well mammals among mammals hmm. Well, no. I'm not going to put you on the spot there. <laughs> we're one of
1: the few that have periods. Okay. Like, but yeah, I no, I think yes. In terms of how we talk about it, it's like a divider between human and animal. Um. So we don't talk about the idea that you know if you ovulate, um. So you you are, you know, experiencing a different kind of set of hormones. Which will increase your libido naturally around that time. Now you may also have an increase of in libido before your period when you're not fertile, but that is kind of a part of it, which is obviously evolutionary, right? Is the your body is sort of like, well, oh, this is this is the time you can get pregnant. So perhaps do the thing that will get you pregnant. Um and so uh,
0: uh right. take away and get <laughs>
1: yeah so like you've got you've got that going on inside, but you also have this idea of pheromones right but you're um, also uh, exuding different pheromones at different times, which is animal thing in our minds, not a human thing um but yes, there is a range of research one of the ones I talked about in my book was this idea of um strippers do do we call them strippers anymore? I'm not sure
0: oh hmm. We call them uh, move, movement based sex workers or something. Movement kind of based, a, sex workers. kind of a, I don't know. Is that, that's, I think there's got to, somebody can somebody can write in with a comment. <laughs> what would be a good yes neologism for strippers?
1: Yes, that would be good. Um, that they make more money when they're ovulating. Um, and oh. strippers on the pill make um, less money than those not on the pill because uh, they're ovulating. But
0: <laughs> is there's... that how? Who did this research? Who who commissioned this?
1: Yeah, oh, um, it's all. It sounds you know, like a Freakonomics
0: thing as well. Yeah. In
1: terms of like volume of research, there's a lot of it. I think uh-huh. because it's kind of stuff that people want to put money into. It involves men. It's kind of interesting. So there is a lot of it. Um, not all of it is good quality. But, you know, it is interesting how much you do hear anecdotally that women say um, that when they come off the pill, they may find that they're, they're not attracted to their partner anymore. And this is not just with heterosexual relationships, also same-sex relationships, uh, because we would assume that's because of the
0: the pheromone the hormone, you know, uh, relationship. Oh, but it's so hard to tell because this, this is causation oh, totally. or correlation, because if you come totally. off the pill presumably you've been with that person for a while now you're trying to start a family now you're just like bored and in marriage <laughs> like, yeah and i've one.
1: always argued because i've always argued well if you have you're with a man who supports you not using the pill uh, for any length of time then that's a bonus to most women because not all men are open to the idea of navigating what happens when they aren't with a woman who's on the pill Right. Um and you know uh, Mary Harrington talks about you know the the default setting for women now being not fertile whereas you know Right. The, 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 so what happens, often that becomes a problem in relationships. So you would want to be with a man who is supportive of your health. Or your choices, right? Um, your and so yeah, I know. I I and I, you know, I don't subscribe to this entirely, but it is something that I think there is enough research on, and um, that there could be more there to it. Uh, and anecdotally, it just seems to really resonate with people.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and I'm also thinking about how this might line up with like dating app culture. Like they have said that that dating apps have been great for a very very small percentage of men and kind of like bad for everybody else. So and I'm I'm not equating the two, but I'm just sort of thinking out loud here. So like if I wonder the birth control pill has been like really great for men, right? Because yes, they can sex without yeah. uh consequence and without responsibility. And so it's look, it's great for everybody. Let's let's be clear in a lot of ways. Um but maybe there has been not enough discussion about the ways that this has benefited men as much if not in some ways more so than women this is tricky i don't i want to be careful what i'm saying here but i mean there's there's plenty of discussion about how the birth control has been good for everybody like let's be clear i don't think there's any there hasn't been any lack of that historically but You know, it's in this whole sort of larger conversation about the sexual revolution more generally, like Louise Perry's book is the case against sexual revolution. Like the idea that this was so great for women is is being revisited now. And um, the birth control pill would be, you know, very much part of the discussion
1: yeah and i think they are looking at that from a health perspective um at least you know mary harrington is with louise perry she's more i think not really directly uh uh, not really directly um working with it as an idea more the sexual revolution in general of which the pill was an integral part obviously um as you say it had to be there you know to women were even if the women were able to not get pregnant even if that was a something that could have happened before the sexual revolution. And, you know, there's a, enough to say that, yes, women were controlling their fertility before the existence of the pill, that that was a major milestone, obviously. And I think, you know, they are coming at it um, is it was it good for women in terms of health, but also was it good for women in terms of the position it put us in? And I think, you know, that's that's interesting. You know, it, was it better for men to be with women who (laughs) default setting as Mary Harrington said is that they're not fertile um and I think uh but for me I've always come at it more from like what did it how how did it become so integral to the development of our society why was it so necessary um for women to work go into the workplace alongside men that this was become this was the the you know the the pill use obviously Women took it up and used it, and it exploded very quickly. And so a lot of women were using it very quickly. And this idea of you know being more like a man, which you know I put in quotes because I think you know really explore what we mean when we say that often, being more like a man in terms of not experiencing the the, the major difference, which is the menstrual cycle, um, and that that has a long medical history. Why, way before the sexual revolution back to victorian medicine you know where the ovaries were considered the sort of well, they were called the, the organs of crisis basically for women oh really and, you
0: know, mm-hmm, yeah the and, organs and, oh, of and, crisis i like that yes. that sounds like and a,
1: removal of, a of the ovaries something. was like basically the pill of the time the removal of the ovaries was like okay this woman isn't you know mentally strong this woman isn't doing what she's told to this woman is having various medical issues we don't know what to do with so let's remove her ovaries um and that was you know a big a big thing at that time you know we also talk about like hysteria and hysterectomies and things Mm -hmm. like that and so I see it as sort of a continuation of a history look long before that really um and then you know in the in the 60s the idea was you know oh women can now dispose of this difference of this this part of them that makes them different to men and compete alongside them and whether you know was that benefiting to men is one way you can look at it or is that more benefiting to society um, and is that why we be- it became so integral and unexamined over time, which
0: I think is what happened, really. Mm-hmm. And we should say I the first oral contraceptive was approved in 1960. Is that correct by the FDA? 60-61, yeah. OK, right around there. Mm. So um, I want to talk about the role of technology here. Because it seems like a lot of what you are perhaps suggesting might be a good solution has to do with being more aware of your body, being able to track this stuff, Uh, because it's 2023. People are going to use apps for that. That still seems a little bit strange to me. I was uh, I was taught by my mother to um, make a little asterisk in the in the calendar, like in your in <laughs> yes. your actual calendar, with a little pencil. Never a pen for some reason. Always a pencil, and um, and keep track of things that way, which I did. <laughs> For, for decades mm-hmm. uh, but um, explain how a how a fertility app might work um and I know you've developed one um so for the for the for the layperson out there, so to speak, uh what's that all about?
1: Yeah, so when I wrote my book, I was sort of this was early days of this technology, and I was a little skeptical about it um, in terms of privacy issues, which is borne out over time as we've seen. And, you know, in terms of the what was called then or what was more fashionable, we talked about then is like the quantified self-movement, the idea of like self-monitoring um, day-to-day for health reasons. Um, and the, But then as I was promoting the book and doing a lot of interviews, a lot of people said what you said to me earlier, which was like, well, you know, fertility awareness sounds great, but a lot of people are too busy um, or otherwise the context of their lives does not allow them the time to do this. Um, And my feeling had always been like, it's really important to democratise this information, even if you choose not to use it for contraception, but also just that it should be more accessible. And I understood that. And so I actually ended up working with a company that I didn't know about, but that had been doing, uh, creating fertility tracking, hardware for you know 30 years or so based on the fertility awareness method so that women could track their cycles and that was sort of my entry point into learning a lot more about the technology Um, and then as you said recently I worked with a app design team and this hardware company to create what is an app that's like a, a free education portal for teenagers to start that body literacy education that they're not getting at school and they're often not getting at home um, to learn more about uh, the whole entirety of the menstrual cycle rather than just how to manage
0: a period. Okay. And we're going to talk in the bonus content about actually the business of uh, developing this app and, and more about how you went about all of that. But can you just explain like... How does it work? Like, what do you do? Like, you open the app and you put your vitals in? Like, what's the first step?
1: Well, yeah. So what you're looking at is the fertility science that I mentioned earlier. And basal body temperature is where the hardware would come in. So you're taking your basal body temperature when you first wake up in the morning before you do anything else. Uh, and that's your resting temperature. And that's what shifts when after you ovulate. So, the device is tracking um, that temperature shift to know that you have ovulated and you've entered that phase of the cycle in which you are infertile. And the algorithm that it uses is what enables it to open up the fertile window to include that sperm lifespan ahead of time, um, to open up at the earliest possible point so that it includes that potential lifespan. So, then you end up with essentially what I mentioned before with like six days of a fertile window which is the biological reality of of most women but this is going to be a a longer slightly longer fertile window and then you have other days outside of that which are infertile and there's you know this has been a huge development since my book came out there is now an fda digital birth control category um you know that it's used to that extent um, that we've gone from, you know, when I was writing about this back then, uh, paper charts, basically, um, mm. and tracking dots to doing it on uh, your phone is a huge difference and has made it much more accessible to many more women. But often the missing piece has been, we still need the the body literacy education element
0: but to wait, make so it you're...
1: more effective
0: you're saying the f d a you're saying this is the tracking app. it's considered a form of birth control,
1: like some of them are yes, wow, they are um and it the f d a has approved it as such um and it's possible to see that which is which is a big deal um and I think you know you're when you're it depends on where you fall on this because obviously with, with the development of this technology, we are seeing wearables um you know and that apple um health app incorporating. Um, this information there too um, oh. which you know they went they went from and this was a big story at the time not including menstrual cycle tracking at all like it wasn't a thing when I mean, it's the first thing that humans ever tracked right
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and then deciding oh we're going to get it on this basal body temperature situation and try and ascertain it through skin temperature well, this is a this is a slightly uh, questionable science at this point there's not enough research, but it's possible to track and heart rate changes too through the cycle so they're also doing that with wearables so it go, it can go from something that is very much about using various tools which I'm in favor of to be more in tune with your cycle and having sort of a practice around that, which is kind of about embodiment and to just having something that you wear on your wrist that's going to tell you whether you're in your fertile phase or not.
0: So it's not like you're taking out a thermometer necessarily and taking your temperature. But I mean,
1: at this point, um, that is happening this is a what, lot, it sounds this like. Is, yeah, yeah, this is what um, I, my app pairs with hardware that does that. Um, and there's reasons that I feel that that's a better choice in terms of, like, accuracy. Um, but there are, you know, the wearables, obviously, the way, the direction that a lot of technology is going. So it is interesting to see that, that it's becoming integrated into things that people already have like that for watch.
0: What do you think about concerns about things like, you know, Republican (laughs) legislative bodies finding out when girls periods are and somehow Mm -hmm. making it difficult to get access to abortion? I don't know. I mean, there's a whole like stack of concern around this kind of monitoring Um, Whether it be, you know, in schools and gym classes and health classes, and then just extending out through various, you know, forms of government intervention and and surveillance. Surveillance. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So this is really interesting. Like I said, it's something I flagged in my book um, in regards to, you know, data privacy. um, And then in 2018, I gave a presentation at a conference, um, which sort of, Rift on the speculative possibilities of if we were concerned about privacy with data in terms of selling to advertisers and advertising agencies or health insurance companies or people who wanted to do targeted ads on Facebook, then it could be possible that we would be worried about the government having access to this data um, through partnerships or subpoena, um, enable, uh, allowing them to see when there's a missed period. And when, say, someone is tracking their periods, and then they miss a period, and then their periods start again, various things like that. And obviously, in recent years, that's become a huge deal. And we saw headlines like "Delete your period tracking app now," um, and everybody got very worried uh, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade that this was the way things were going. And I've, I completely understand why you may be concerned about that. I obviously don't think that people necessarily should delete their period tracking apps now um it's kind of uh you know for me it was a uh two-sided thing where you know i think that the the amount of data historical data and the level of body literacy in terms of like that is useful to women in their everyday lives but also useful in terms of working with healthcare providers and with over like menstrual health issues and fertility issues is like and also the potential for that data for real research that has not been done before because it's just so much data that can be used for that research. Is all of these things are huge positives of the way that we're tracking now. Um, but that obviously that this potential of it is worrying and I think it would be for, it seems far more possible in a country that would have a national healthcare system to me. Um
0: mm. uh, because well, we, we've not, got nothing to worry about in that case, yeah
1: no that's not happening anytime soon but the problem is always like the, the, this idea that the government could subpoena that information um in order to figure out whether you've had an abortion or you miscarriage uh, um uh, and you know a lot of the companies to their credit have all you know the ones based in this country um and elsewhere have added in elements for immediate deletion of data um, they've increased anonymity of data in terms of through their protocols and how it's processed. Um, the companies that I work with and develop the app with and things like that, they are a hardware company predominantly, which makes it very different because, you know, it's different to having a free app, which I think people should be aware that, you know, if you're getting downloading a free app that hasn't, the business model is that, then the data is the, the valuable asset. Mm-hmm. in a lot of cases um and I think a lot of this is is, is, is is was important awareness I just felt I really bulked at the kind of throw it all away reaction to that yeah because it didn't feel supportive of women in the long term really it was an overcorrection. I felt
0: right Well, speaking of this country, you're clearly not from this country. You're from the UK. Is the atmosphere over there different than here in America?
1: Oh, yeah, in many ways. um, You know, when I've always got much more uh, positive uh, response to my work through in the UK, you know, where you have the national health system bargaining for Prices of medications. It's not run by the for-profit system that we have here, mm-hmm. uh, which makes a huge difference, I think, and is is definitely obvious there. And they have, you know, a, a large number of people who use fertility awareness method. Uh, the NHS offers fertility awareness method classes um, in certain cities, which is an amazing development. Um, and in terms of like privacy, there isn't the feeling, you know, because I would say overall abortion is kind of a done and dusted deal. The abortion mm-hmm. rights is a done and dusted deal in the UK in the way it's not here. And here, you know, the major thing is that the pill has become this sort of incredibly politicized football, right? So that really controls the entire conversation in a lot of ways, um, because we are so focused on continuing access under these so presumed threats to access, that we would no longer be able to access hormonal birth control for one reason or another, that there is really no space for talking about side effects or safety issues or whether it was the best thing for women or whether it's the best thing for all women, or, you know, all these conversations is hard to have within the climate that we're in now, especially post-Roe v. Wade, um, because people have have long been, you know, uh, very, very focused on access um, and not focused on anything outside of that for fear that that would give uh, fodder and ammunition to the side that wants to take it away.
0: Yeah, I guess we should have been clear at the the beginning. There's such a death grip on so many of these things. And I guess I, I... I don't get the sense that they're trying to take away hormonal birth control. I mean, I know that's been like introduced into the conversation and that some people do have that concern, but yeah, I can see how it would be people as with so many of this stuff, they're afraid of talking about it for fear of it being weaponized by the, Mm -hmm. by the other side. Well, before I let you go and we, and we go into the bonus, I want to ask you, and maybe you don't know the answer to this and maybe it's irrelevant, but whatever happened to the idea of a male birth control pill?
1: So I find, yeah, it's always, the, the joke is it's always five years away, right? <laughs> and in recent years, I found it really interesting that whenever it does pop up in the news, people are like, oh, it's definitely coming. It's a, people have very short memories. It's been definitely coming for a very <laughs> It's kind of like
0: the now. end of the world. It's always right <laughs> yes. around the corner.
1: Yes, it is. Exactly. And it's not coming. So you know the problem is, is they do research into different options for the hormonal-based birth control for men, and they always come up with side effects, unsurprisingly. And the original birth control pill was tested on men, and they came up with side effects, and decided to just like do what kinds
0: off. of side effects? Any any worse than the women's side effects? Or From like- the modern versions? No, the same sort of thing. So not like impotence or anything. Just no, the, mo- same, moodiness, just the same sort of like- thing
1: yeah depression uh suicidal thoughts um lethargy you know all the things that you can imagine you take away testosterone and replace it with synthetic testosterone but so you know none of these things seem to be coming uh to any place of like oh that that will be definitely out soon but there are some non-hormonal options that again have been in the making for a long time you know there's a one that's a like a polymer that basically you no longer produce sperm and then it can be reversed um uh, mm. and otherwise the it doesn't affect anything um uh, which is interesting, and there's another one that I think um changes the viability of the sperm so that it's not fertile um but doesn't change hormonal profile at all so there's lots of different takes on coming through on that, but they again that not there's not. There's no, you know, however much men say they want it, um, I, I just think the pill is so integral to how we organize yeah. ourselves now, that it would take such. It, it's not going to come from there. It may come from women stopping using the pill, but it's not going to come from the top down.
0: Yeah, I know. Isn't it amazing? Like, like just describing like it makes the the sperm. It deactivates the sperm for a while. Like even sitting here, I'm like, oh, that sounds terrible. That's too much to risk. That, that's very risky. I don't blame them for not wanting to do that. But at the same time, we've been like mucking with our bodies for for decades. You're right. It's just so exactly. um, so ingrained. Yeah, yeah. Well, Holly, this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for for talking about this. And uh, I'm glad that it's a growing conversation and that we're we're learning more about it because it's something that I didn't hadn't really thought about a lot so uh thank you so we're gonna we're gonna um keep you for the bonus and talk about uh femtech which is this uh sort of the world of um technology and apps for all kinds of female concerns (laughs) but um in the meantime uh thank you so much thank you that was my conversation with Holly griggs Spall. She is the author of Sweetening the Pill, or How We Got Hooked on Hormonal Birth Control. It was released in 2013 and will hit its 10-year anniversary later this year. It was the inspiration for the 2021 documentary, The Business of Birth Control. Holly recently launched Tina, a free education-forward app, supporting body literacy for tweens and teens. And uh, you can hear more about that app in the bonus portion of our conversation, which you can access by becoming a paying subscriber at megandown.substack.com. What else? The unspeakeasy. We also talk about the unspeakeasy in the bonus portion. In case you don't hear me talk about it enough here, you can hear somebody else talk about it. We're going to have a retreat coming up in Austin, Texas, June 24th and 25th go to the unspeakeasy.com to find out about that and look our online community is awesome what can I say it's really so much better than I could even have imagined so if you are a woman and you don't have enough uh, you know social media online communities in your life join ours I think you'll really like it and uh, we're growing and expanding this whole enterprise all the time I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.